Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit Is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit Is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. All right, we are back in full effect for the Detroit Is Different podcast in the studios with somebody very creative. If you know me, you know I love creative people. And she's so interconnected to so many of the other creatives that I know. And I'm talking about visual artistry, but also just good vibes and best friends of one of the most creative people I know in the JCM category. We got <laughs> Sabrina Nelson in effect. Sabrina, how you feeling? I'm feeling with my hands, my eyes, my spirit, and my soul. Okay. Now, see, that's what I said. <laughs> see, like creative people, they're not just going to say, I'm doing good today. Right. They're going to give you a little bit extra in, well. that, in that full essence of well. beauty, the full essence of artistry. And as we say, definitely being against the grain. So let's start this story how I usually start this story. Detroit. What brings you to Detroit? Uh, how long has your family been in the Detroit area? Ooh, what brings me to Detroit? How about some of us were born here in the year of the rebellion, 1967, for those hmm. of you who don't know. I was born here. Um, mm -hmm. So I've been here. Now the, the question might be what keeps me here as opposed to what brings me here. Because okay. I know a lot of people who are in their 50s um, who have gone on to college and um, <laughs> what they might have feel what might be greener pastures. So my family is here. Um, I've got a lot of history and history here. I have, um, um, I own a home. Mm -hmm. um, it's easier to stay when you have an anchor. Um, my grandchildren are here and I can live like a queen here versus living like a pauper in other places that I are like on the it. East Coast or like down South, you know. All right, let's go into the family traditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, first people that made their way to Detroit. Ooh, my grandmother's mother and great father. Grandma. Right. My great grandmother and great grandfather came here because of the industrial age that Detroit um, had, meaning, you know, the automotive plants. So my grandfather worked um, as security, I think, at one point down off of Jefferson. I don't know what um, industrial situation was down there but I remember riding by and my grandmother pointing that's where my daddy worked so he was downtown um mm. in the downtown area and I know he was a security um down there so it was the the money you know what, that bought uh, them here what place did they leave what uh what they left Alabama Birmingham if you would Alabama. so but it was it was not really Birmingham it was a small little city about maybe an hour out of Birmingham, so maybe the distance between Detroit and Ann Arbor. It was Sylacauga, Coosa County, Bessemer, all of those small little areas is where my um, maternal grandparents, great-grandparents came from. So we have a family cemetery down there. Mm -hmm. We have um, quite a bit of family still there. So we Detroit-Bama. Okay. <laughs> and, and Detroit does have some strong roots to Alabama as a lot of the people during the Great Migration absolutely from Alabama and Georgia in the city of Detroit, almost to the point where it's certain streets in Black Bottom that 
it will be like nothing but people from like this Alabama city and that Alabama right. city. Right. And I think they, they came collectively as groups. And so you might find those that came from Tennessee that lived in the same area, mm-hmm. those that came from Georgia or, mm-hmm. you know, the Atlanta um, Macon area that lived in the same area and those that came from Alabama lived in the same area. So they probably settled in what we know now as Hamtramck, Black Bottom area. And that's probably where they allowed, you know, the coloreds or the Negroes to live first. And then they moved out and spread out. But I know my family lived in a part of Black Bottom, a part of the east side, a part of Hamtramck. And what's really interesting when people ask, you know, what side of town are you from if I'm out of state? They'll say, wait, what side are you from? And I say all sides. I'm from all Detroit. Like I'm not repping the west side, the east side. I'm everywhere. We're everywhere. Okay. And I claim all them sides. Okay. All right. Now, as you talk about claiming all them sides, paternal sides, what uh, what are their roots outside of Detroit? Georgia and Georgia. Um, okay. Mississippi. Georgia and Mississippi. And also um, Arkansas. So my great-grandfather was born in a reservation with Choctaw, Chickasaw hmm. in Arkansas. And then they moved to Mississippi. My grandmother, who was, um, I think she was one of 15 um, was in Georgia, and so they linked, and then they had my father in Texas. <laughs> Ain't that something? So we everywhere. Yeah, they were they were like, okay, we got to find a better space and place. Right, you know, and then they were still having lots of babies then too to help work the land. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So my great grandmother is one of the last of fifteen. My grandmother is one of fifteen. Wasn't the last, but one of fifteen too. So your dad was the first one to come to Detroit. Um, no, Mm-mm. his aunt was here and because his aunt and uncle, who was his maternal aunt, did not have children. And my great my grandfather had died and my grandmother had eight. Well, she she had 12, but she had eight that survived. Mm. And I might be wrong on that. But um, my father was one of in the middle of the boys. And so his aunt couldn't have children. So they mm. sent him here to Detroit to be with his aunt. Okay. All right. Now for you coming up, what was your neighborhood? Ooh, I grew up in the um, Dexter Elmhurst area. That's Stone's throw from over Listen, I'm right here. We had the Shrine of the Black Madonna. We had um, the Dexter Elmhurst Florist. We had the Dexter Elmhurst Center where my brothers and sisters um, did their, um, uh, they were like flagpole drumming and marching and um they also played for the west side cubs wow and i didn't uh, <laughs> i didn't cheer i didn't play i just was Did in the stands the oh, okay. i went to the game i okay. went to the swimming pool we believed in the pig lady it was everything over here you know everybody was um this i grew up in the 70s i was born in 67 so i remember the 70s where everybody had on afros dashikis my afro was a little weird it was blonde and orange and just weird um, but I remember um, going to Belle Isle where the, uh, the, the, the fountain, which is the Scott Fountain now, used to change colors and people used to be um, protesting against the Vietnam War. So there was a lot of people who would take off all their clothes and run around the fountain naked 
to protest, you know, just to be free. And it was a lot of hippies and stuff. But I remember that. And I remember wow. also my teachers. I remember the um, barbers, the hairdressers, the police officers, the corner store. Everybody knew each other. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like you know, the banker, everybody knew each other. And everybody lived in a neighborhood. Nobody lived outside of the neighborhood. If you got in trouble in school, she probably lived around the corner from you. If you got your hair done, everybody got their hair done typically by the same lady. And they got their hair cut at the same barber. And the corner store or the liquor store or the candy store lived, the people who owned it lived in your neighborhood. So it was a real neighborhood. It wasn't just a hood. Now, as you talk about that, I just have a, a question to ask. Yes. Certain people remember it, some people don't. But one of my favorite interviews thus far on Detroit is Different was mm-hmm. when I interviewed Zayna. Oh. And she tells me how Spectacle started on Dexter. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just was at Zayna's store the other day. And she, um, I think Zayna went to, she went to Cast Tech, but she lived, um, she was telling me she went to middle school with Miss Vera, who is Monica Blair's mother. Mm-hmm. And um, they they went they lived over in the neighborhood. I yep. think they went to Durfee. I went to Winterhalter, mm. and I went to Kitan Elementary. So this is sort of you know my area, and everybody I knew went to Central High School. Yep, Central. And is. so we didn't leave until '79, and we moved further west because my birth mother died, mm. and it was um, a lot happening. Like this neighborhood, I remember because this neighborhood was taken over by heroin in the mm-hmm. 70s, just taken over. And that's when the brothers started coming back from Vietnam and they was bringing all kinds of shit with them. Mm-hmm. And that, that stuff killed our neighborhoods. You know, it was sort of like they didn't feel valued when they came back. They didn't feel valued while they were there. They didn't feel good about what was happening. And when they came back, they destroyed themselves, which destroyed our neighborhoods and our families. Now, as you talk about that, and that's one of those realities that I often point out mm-hmm. <clears throat> In the history of black America, uh, I think a lot of people often say, you know, crack did this and crack did that. Heroin had a stronghold on many of the soldiers that came back as Vietnam was one of the opium producing nations uh, at the time. Uh, Some of those stories that people go to are like when you look at American Gangster with Denzel Washington and they're telling the Frank Lucas story as people are looking back right now at... uh, at the story of Bumpy Johnson and mm-hmm. his portrayal through, man, my mind just went blank. It, it's on epics, but uh, right. the Godfather of Harlem and right. people are liking that. But heroin and just that depressing drug to deal with some of the traumas and now what's labeled as PTSD, not just for black I call it post-traumatic you know, slave <laughs> syndrome. You know what I'm saying? It's like a combination of that. And also dealing with not wanting to be there and wanting to numb all of the feelings of you killing these people that you don't feel have done anything to you. You know what I'm saying? And being there because you feel like you don't have a choice and and how to um, in your head rationalize how am I killing these people, these brown people. And then when I get home, I have no respect, no place to go, nothing to do. And I'm, I'm just trying to take care of my family and me. And so. I also think about how the families were separated during slave time and how, you know, we were sold off. You know, you could fall in love with somebody and have a whole family and then they sell you off, you know. And so, you know, we don't value 
ourselves because we weren't valued. And then we've had to reteach ourselves how to value ourselves as a family, as a unit. And I just think, you know, um, watching uncles and family members come back from Vietnam, they were really fucked up. Like they were just really messed up. You can go in a place and kill people who've done like, you know, the, the rationalization of you're killing someone in your head to protect your family all the way here in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK. Kill them. Kill that woman, that old woman, that baby, that old man, that young man. Kill everybody. Yeah. You know, and then you come back here and you have no respect. So I think that that drug epidemic helped to numb the guilt, mm-hmm. the pain and then also the idea that you're Ralph Ellison's invisible man. You come back here and you have nothing. They don't give you nothing. No veterans, nothing. Mm-hmm. Like you got to figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it definitely, uh, if you talk to some Vietnam veterans and hear their stories connected to our families, um, the black soldiers experience there was, is, uh, is a telling story. Right. It's a telling story. Now, it, in your journey as an artist, mm-hmm. you're speaking from a young age of seeing things that had impacts on you, like visually. When did you start? When did you start going from like you know most kids you know play with crayons and, and, and with markers and color pencils, but when did it start making an impact on you where it's like okay, I'm really into this artistry. Well, here's the thing: I think people have a notion that as a child you don't see things. Like mm-hmm. you're supposed to to be in this position as a child, you know, like as an adult does, an adult does. As a child does, you sit there, you're quiet. And my mother used to say that all the time. Be in the room, be seen and not heard. Not heard yes. Right. I mean, it was like you stay in a child's place. They said that all the time. Mm-hmm. And so with that being said, you are a witness. And, you know, people will say, do as I say and not as I do, but I'm watching stuff that's happening. I'm looking at people nodding off. I've seen people use heroin, warm it up, you know, wrap their arms up so the vein can, and, and you know, and heat it up on the stove and just shoot it in. I mean, you see that shit. And so I don't care how young you are. You are, um, you know, I don't know if you remember this ad. It was like live or Memorex, right? And so... As a witness of this, and you see how people change in personality, they can be loving and sweet one minute and just gone, where their eyes are just gone. Like you, mm-hmm. I, I just know now as an adult, I can look at somebody and tell when they're not there. Yeah. You know, it's like a zombieism, if it, if it would. You know, uh, Fela Kuti sang about that zombie, hmm. you know. And so I just think that I was... Um, I was a witness to all of these things that happened in the city growing up, and that made me grow up a little bit faster than I should have. And now when people meet me, they're like, you're so childlike. And I think, you know, if you have to grow up really, really soon, there is going to be a moment where you revert back to that childlike behavior. And I think that is in my artistry Hmm. where I have um, some very youthful feelings about color and what I choose to paint right now, I'm in a, a stage of witnessing what's happening with black lives, black women who lose their children to violent death in cities. And so um, I'm constantly uh, being the scribe, if you would. I'm recording that through my my personal voice. But at the same time, just because you're a child 
it doesn't mean that you always have crayons in front of you. You know, like we didn't have access to video games and we didn't have a lot of distractions. We didn't have um, cell phones. We didn't have the Internet. So we didn't have a choice but to see what was happening right in front of us. Right. We had the grapevine. You could hear somebody on the phone playing the numbers or somebody saying, girl, Rita done fell out again. She, you know, she with so-and-so and he dead. You, so you hear these conversations from your grandmother and your great-grandmother and you cannot help but to, it's in your head. It stays there. And so, and then you, you walk down the street and you see Ned the wino getting high and you know he's also a heroin addict because his hands are swollen. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you cannot avoid that when you grew up in the 70s here in Detroit and you were you, you stayed outside you played until the street lights came on and it wasn't as much of a fear of somebody's going to get your kid or somebody's going to come in and get your house we kept the doors open they were unlocked trusted the neighbors cuz a lot of the neighbors were family and even if they weren't blood family we all fed each other right and so we stayed outside and we watched everything you know we saw teddy across the street turn into fire and, um, you know, start using hormones and had full breast. <laughs> and we was like, well, he was born Theodore, but now her name is Fire. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we saw transgenders like firsthand and, and didn't question. It was like, OK, Fire know how to dress <laughs> yeah. and Fire know how to tell somebody don't don't mess with me. And so we just were witnesses of so many things before I was even 12. Okay. And you as an artist, what 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 were you drawing yourself at that age? What were you sketching? Oh, okay. I I remember I don't ever remember not being an artist. Like that was mm-hmm. my play. And I think it was also an opportunity for me to have a safe space mm-hmm. mentally. Mm-hmm. So I would draw paper dolls and I would create this world of um really great things. I had a neighbor who was a truck driver. His name was Sam McFadden. And he was always gone, but when he came home, he always bought me a little gift, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, when I grow up, I want to be a truck driver. I don't (laughs) think I wanted to be a truck driver. I just wanted to travel like Sam because he was always gone. And I felt like gone was better than being there because Mm -hmm. being there sometimes was not always good. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was always drawing a world that I wished would be. Like I would draw paper dolls and the paper dolls would have the best clothes. They would have the best home. They would have like a mom and a dad and a safe place. Mm -hmm. And there would be no drugs and there would be no fighting and there would be no um, wars. And so I would draw the world that I imagined. And I remember doing that at like five, seven, nine. I mean, I don't ever remember not drawing. Do, do you do you still have some of these works? Like I do. Uh, I have a couple pieces from when I was nine. I think my great grandmother and my grandmother saved them um, in a like a box. They would save locks of hair in a cedar chest hmm. in the Bible and stuff like that. So I have them. I I don't know where they are. They're somewhere in my house. Artists are hoarders. We we're fucking hoarders. Okay. Uh, so we keep shit. Like uh-huh. I got Mario's stuff. He's thirty two. I got Denise's stuff. She's thirty seven. I have uh-huh. Sudanese math book pinned up in my bathroom, and she's nineteen. And I know she did it when she was seven. So we are hoarders, if you will. And I think it's just collecting these memories because people don't print out pictures anymore and people don't have like tape recorders or slides of family picnics or videos and I I have them because I want to make sure that as a keeper of history that my children's children's children know that we were here 
Okay. Now, in this space of artistry, uh, I think one of the coolest things is the the creativity of it. Mm-hmm. When did you as an artist connect that other people will appreciate your work on a stage beyond your family? Like, when did you oh. see that the, the general public will, like, connect with some of the pieces that you're making? Well, I want to take it back a little bit because I couldn't dance like my sisters. Like, they were, like, family, you know, you always have, like, a family reunion, and they uh-huh. like, show us the new dances, and they would be like, you you sit down. You were watching Soul, <laughs> you were watching Soul Train, like, right, ah, I can't, right. can't, I can't, can't do it. it. But my sisters were cheerleaders. They had really amazing rhythm, and they could dance, right? Uh-huh. And they could dance. And I was, like, roboting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I could robot. That's it, you know, and I could like, you know, do the robot and that's it. Maybe do the slide. But it was like I felt like my brother was really okay with drawing. And then um, he had a little science lab and I was his Igor. (laughs) But I could draw. And then when I realized that my drawing was different than everybody else's, the teachers at Kitan would say, okay, we're going to put this outside because this is good. Wow. And the boys would be like, you can't draw, girls can't draw. And I'd be like, yes, I can. <laughs> and it was like, no, you can't. And then I got beat up one day and I was like, oh, I must be able to draw then. Is somebody going to fight me because I could draw? You know, yeah. if you ain't got enough hate, you must not be doing something right. So I felt like, you know, that was, that was my thing. And it was so hard also um, being fair-skinned in my elementary school colorism was really at its height you know it's like black is 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 you know like right on you know it was like ngawa black power and everybody had a dashiki and an afro and mine was leaning to the side with blonde and brown hair and red and it was like i don't know what you is but you white we don't like you so it was a, a battle just to be me and i also felt like that was one thing that i could do that no one could compete with like i could draw and then I, I'd look at somebody else's drawing and somebody would say, well, that one is better. So when mm. other people started saying your drawing is really good. And then in my family, I would give out these cards to people. I would draw mm. them all the time and give them cards. And they'd be like, wow, this baby, got she can draw. And mm. so, you know, you start hearing it and then you start believing it. Like I felt like I could do it. It felt good to do. Now, now can you talk about that experience of just being younger and connecting that level of appreciation, building your confidence as a younger person. I could do that. I had a neighbor. Her name was Kimberly, and she was very quiet, and her grandmother didn't let her out. Her mom was still down south, and her and her sister were here. And we used to just spend hours making clothes out of old scrap fabric and drawing. And so after a while, I had a nice collection, and my grandmother was in an Eastern Star group Um, which is uh, the female portion to the Masons. Mm -hmm. And so she and her best friend cousin would make all of their clothing, and I would show them the doll dresses that I would make, and they'd be like, okay, and then they started giving me scrap fabric. And so I would draw out the design and then make it for the Barbie dolls or the paper dolls. And so that became... Like, look at what this baby did. And we were sewing with our hands. We, we couldn't use a sewing machine. Mm-hmm. And so it just became um, evident that I was interested in creativity. Hmm. I didn't know what an artist meant, but I was a creative kid and I could spend hours being quiet just drawing. Wow. And so there were a lot of kids in the family, but I could disappear in my drawing. And mm. so people would come, family would come, and I would show them the drawings, and they'd be like, wow, that's really nice. And so I think it was also me looking for praise and attention because I was also the middle in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so it just, 
it felt good to hear the praise, to be acknowledged, mm-hmm. and to know that each time I drew something, that every time I showed it to them, that I would get praise wow. and acknowledgement. And so that started probably like six, seven, nine, ten, and then there was a period where I didn't draw at all, and that was wow. probably right after my mother died when mm. I was 12, and that was 79 probably to like 80, mm. you know, just a whole year where it was like I had no voice I just didn't want to be because it was, it, you know, you, you lose your mother and then you move and you lose your friends and then you lose your neighborhood. And then you're in this area where all these people are white. They're busing you to a school. You don't want to be there. And trauma is happening to your family. So I lost my mother. And then my grandmother lost her mother, and we were mm. with my grandmother. And then my mom, who is my mother's sister and grandmother, adopted us, and she lost her husband. It was like, wow. it was just a lot of trauma. So mm. I was moving from home to home just to try and keep everybody together. And this is like around age 10. No, this was 12. This was 12. in 79. Okay. And so I lived with, um, I don't know if you know Sundiata, Sawande's father. Yes. I lived with his mother, wow. with Dot. Um, and Dot had five boys. So one day has four uncles. So it was five boys. They were all gone. And she, you know, always wanted a girl. So she's got granddaughters, but they were with their parents. And she said, let me take her. I'll just, you know, watch out for her. So I stayed with Dot, um, Sundiata's mother, for probably a year, year and a half. It was just to give my grandmother a break because she had lost her daughter, her baby daughter, then her mother a year later. Yeah. And that was a lot. And so when I tell people Sundiata is my cousin, they're like, for real? I'm like, yeah. So one day is my baby cousin, but for real, for real, I lived with his grandmother. So, and I and I know the energy of Sundiata. Like yeah. I always tell Sundiata, uh, his father's energy is just it just exuded in creativity. So I'm sure that connection over time. But at that time, I'm guessing losing your mother yeah. and being in new spaces, especially processing that at 12 years old, you stopped. You stop. Yeah, you know, you you just get silent. It's not even your passion. It's your like. It's not a passion for me. It's my voice. It's mm. like breathing. Mm. You know, it's not a passion. It's part of who I am. Mm-hmm. So um, some people look at art or your your musical talent, your you know your writing talent. It becomes you. Like it's not yeah. like I was born as I am. Right. You some people can run away from that and they try and fight it. But I I just kind of swam with it. I'm like, oh, okay, this is my stroke. I'm good with this. So I think I was born to be who I am. Mm -hmm. And I didn't try and figure out what I want to be when I grow up because I already was that. Wow. And so I just had to do people would be like, don't you want to be a nurse, a secretary, a teacher? And I was like, uh, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm I'm already an artist, thanks. And then when I found out you could go to art school to be what you already are, I was like, this shit is gonna be easy. <laughs> what um what brought you back? What was the what what brought you back to that? I just think sometimes you hold your breath, right? Mm-hmm. When you get shocked, you hold your breath. <coughs> Excuse me. When you're in pain, you hold your breath and you realize <coughs> you're not breathing. You're not breathing. Mm-hmm. And then you have to take a breath, sit back, and breathe slowly mm-hmm. and come back to who you are. Okay. And I, I, don't, I don't know that. I mean, we, we had counseling when we were kids. I don't remember it. Mm-hmm. I, I, some of it may have helped. I just remember being invisible, being hurt, being angry, being mad, being sad, and not breathing. Mm-hmm. 
And so when you're not breathing, it's like you're in this cathartic, not cathartic, you're in this um, state of, uh, <clears throat> what is the word? when like you Paralysis? Yeah, it's like you. It's like this, right? Mm -hmm. And so you get to the point where you're like, um, I don't know if you remember the movie The Wiz. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where the kids were stuck on the wall. Yeah. And then you come out. Mm. You know, it's a brand new day. You okay. have to move. You have to live. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, my grandmother used to have a thing in the hallway. It was the first thing I learned how to read. I don't know if it was my grandmother's or my great-grandmother's, but it's in my hallway now. It's a little card, and it says, today is the first day of the rest of your life. And I finally got to the point where I was like, wow. They would also say shit like, this too shall pass. You know, and it was like, okay, I'm in pain. I'm hurting. Does anybody feel my hurt? And I couldn't say that to my grandmother because she was in pain. She had lost her mother and her daughter in a year's time. Yeah. So what right do I have as her grandchild to, you know what I'm saying? Like, I too am in pain, but I can't say that. I don't know how to say it. So I'm just in paralysis. You do as a child is supposed to do. You're quiet, you're seen, and you're not heard. Mm -hmm. After a while, you get to the point where you're like, I have to live. I've got people around me, and they're all happy. <laughs> you know, now, they're moving. Now, as, as I've definitely explored more of that, especially being a black child, mm -hmm. and some of this, I think, it's, it can be a defense mechanism that has been carried on from generation to generation of you're seen and not heard. Maya Angelou says she didn't talk for a year. And, and, I and think she got whole, raped or something, but she did not talk for a whole year. Yes. And, 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 and just the commonplace of so much of this, mm -hmm. possibly even being connected to the plantation, as, I, as I've been thinking about it, be, or speaking up even from sharecropping or Jim yeah. Crow or even today, like if if. If the cops pull me over and I have a six year, my six year, my nine year old nephew in the back seat, mm -hmm. my response would definitely be immediately to him be like, look, be quiet. Right. Don't say anything. Don't say nothing. Don't you breathe. Right. So do you think that some of that comes from the, the conditioning of the defense mechanism that may not necessarily be the, the best place, best, uh, psychological space for a child to develop but it's coming from a hurt space that the the parent may be in as well well i think in the black life and culture we have been taught specifically women we've been taught that we must move forward through whatever we're dealing with because we ain't got time to break down we ain't got time to be going to no kind of counseling. We ain't got that kind of money. We have to keep moving. And my grandmother did that, right? Through the pain of losing her daughter to heroin, losing her mother just not, just not having good health and age, and then she herself had two strokes and had to take care of her grandchildren that were her daughter's children. Mm -hmm. So I just think that, you know, in revisiting the blackbird theme that I've been doing about black women. I'm just thinking that sometimes, you know, that that whole self care thing was not a thing. You know, your yeah. self care is going to get your drink and maybe going to a, a, a church, yeah. a holy space and, and, you know, give it to God. God going to carry you. Um, okay. How about you eat better? You sleep. You may sit down and cry and it's OK to have a moment to take a knee, to take a Kaepernick. And she just didn't. And so I lost her before she was even 70. Grandmothers don't die at 60 something. You know what I mean? Like they're just now becoming a grandmother. Yeah. And so I just think that um, 
because of our conditioning in the world and how we have to get up and pick that that uh, cotton. You know, you can have that baby today, but uh, later on today, if you feel good, you got to you got to carry your load, too. Right. And so um, I think that we haven't always given ourselves an opportunity to mourn or to um, take a second to deal with our, our, our bag, what is heavy. And so I think with um, post-traumatic slave syndrome, it's so much shit in so many layers. Um, not that I'm, I'm saying that that is a reason for a lot of it, but I feel like it's under when you have, um, you're eating those emotions you know, and they're in your DNA, you have to figure a way through it. And I think with me, I just was silent. Like I didn't know how to, that was the way that I mourned. I was quiet. And so I didn't want to draw. I didn't want to breathe. I didn't want to get up. And so you, you know, there were plenty of family members like, baby, you got to go to school. Baby, you got to do this. Baby, you got, and as a child, you can't be like, hell no, I ain't doing that. I mean, you know, we didn't have that privilege as some other privileged children do. And so I just had to keep moving. And after a while, the the movement and the routine eventually woke me up. And I just started to realize that life is not going to stop. I'm not going to die at 30. Um, You know, not everything's going to kill me. And I just have to move. And so with that movement came my art came back. You know, I started drawing. I didn't have art in school, though. I had art in elementary school, but I didn't have it in middle school. I had drama. They had music. So I could join a a choir or something. And I could sing, you know, and that was great. I started recording in high school and realized that, you know, once I got into the recording studio and they cut my voice out of a song that I was in, I was like, oh, fuck this. Hey, Millie Vanilli. Listen, I was like, and I, I could hold a note. It just hurt my heart. I was like, and then Millie it's, Vanilli. they silenced that. And I was like, well, I'm going to keep drawing because can't nobody silence that. Mm. And so um, mm-hmm. that voice became louder and louder and I didn't have art. So I was hungry. And mm. by the time I found the art school, it was like, I'm coming in this beast and I'm taking over. Okay. And you, you've touched on it a couple times and we're going to come back to that art school question but right now i want you to go into you have an exhibit right now yes that people can experience and check out that talks so much about this experience with black women share so i was invited to do a installation at detroit is a new black and she had a space in the back by a door that she wanted um, energized. And she asked me to do it. And I was like, oh, my God, this would be great to do my Blackbird. And I've been doing Blackbird now for about eight years where I'm talking about black women who lose their children to violent death. Um, and everybody is somebody's child, so not just babies. Although Detroit has one of the highest infant mortality rates in this country. I don't know why we do. Um And so something happened where her foot got broke and she started doing performances in the space and she just kind of dropped the ball with calling me back and I had collected these bird cages and had these pieces that I wanted to put in and it just didn't work. But serendipitously, um, the person who is the chair of the art program out at Madonna University, Chris Seguin, Dr. Chris Seguin, called me and said, hey, Sabrina, 
um, I really, really want to put um, a show together, a solo show of you. What do you think about that? And would you consider? And I was like, hail to the yes. I turned into Medea. I'm the girl, yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, well, so I'm working with this black bird theme, and I don't know how you feel about it. Um, but it's about black women, and, and the metaphor is the black bird, which is the raven. A group of ravens together is called a conspiracy or an unkindness. A group of crows together is called a murder of crows. So I've had thousands of these blackbirds that I've made that are both ravens and crows, and I really wanted to put them in the space. I wanted to have empty bird cages as an empty womb. I wanted to have um, pattern paper as dresses because I'm talking about murmuration, which is really a group of birds and how they fly. Um, you know, it's called a murmuration. And I'm talking about black women, you know, that come from the south to the north looking for a better life. And then all, their children are dying daily, either from guns or just death or police brutality, all kinds of things. And I'm not just talking black women, but I'm talking black and brown women, indigenous women who are taken, black young women or brown Latino women, Latina women who are taken and put into the sex trade and nobody's looking for them, right? Or not enough of us. And so um, when she heard that, she's like, that sounds really powerful. And I said, the work is going to be very similar to Wangechi Mutu's, which is, She's talking about blood diamonds in some cases. It's very beautiful. It's seductive. And you get up to it and it knocks the shit out of you once you realize what you're looking at. And that's what I wanted my work to be. I wanted it to be seductive, beautiful, and you not to know immediately what you're looking at. And so she said, yes. So the show is at Madonna University. Um, On the flyer, it says the show is up until February the 14th. It's in an open space. That space is on the opposite side of the Kresge Hall Library. So that building is always open, so anybody can go and see the work at any time. Um, it says it's going to be open until February the 14th. They're going to extend it to the wow. middle of February. Um, they want to have an artist talk. There is an artist statement there that talks about what each piece is, um, what it um, means what the metaphor of it is, but a blackbird is a metaphor for black women based on Nina Simone's song, um, Why You Want to Fly Blackbird. And um, that song is just talking about black women who are not born to be these happy women with silver spoons in their mouth. They're going to deal, like I think a line in the song says, your mama's name is sorrow and your daddy's name is pain. And so it's just talking about you don't expect to always be happy. You're going to have a life that will challenge you, but you have to keep moving. Hmm. And so um, the show is really about that. It's about black birds and how they live. And, and, you know, once you lose a child, you have an empty womb, which was their first home. So the bird cage represents um, not only the birth mother, but the earth mother, the counselors, the teachers, the coaches, the neighbors that also help to mother and feed that child. You know, when we think of Sandra Bland, Jessica's got a book out right now called We Want Our Bodies Back, and it's a a beautiful poem in honor of Sandra Bland. She was somebody's baby, and she wasn't even, I don't even think she was 30 yet, right? She was 20-something years old who Mm -hmm. was pulled over by the the Texas police, and then she said on a, a, a video, if I die in jail, I didn't do it. You know, um, when we think of uh, Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown, there's a painting in my show that is the eyes of Mike Brown's mother. 
Hmm. and anguish because it pisses me off when the media catches the mother in anguish and then puts the mic in her face and says, how do you feel once the police officer gets off? You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, how would you feel? And so I used those images from the media and I painted Mike Brown's mother's eyes in complete anguish and I put a, um, a raven's beak on her and then this really um, interesting, beautiful hair that looks like hair from like the early 1800s that a black woman would wear. Um, and I, I used a reference that's probably from Carrie James Marshall to um, Vanderzy, you know. So I'm looking at old images of women who had just become freedmen, you know, and, and what it was like to live and know that, you know, you have this son and he's going to be killed if he, you know, whistles at a woman like uh, our, our Emmett, Till. Uh, Emmett Till. And so... He was 14. And so this this has always happened in our lives. And we haven't had cell phones to document it like uh, the young woman did while she sat next to and watched her partner die. Yeah. And so we don't we didn't have that. And so we had the grapevine and Emmett Till's mother wanted to leave the casket open so we all could see it. And so mm-hmm. in the way that we have social media and hashtags, we are leaving the casket open so we, too, can feel we, too, can empathize with Sabrina Fulton and other mothers of um, these blackbirds. And in this, you, you spoke a little bit about your creative process, but. What what paints did you use? What did did you use charcoal? Did you use I did uh, many? <laughs> did you use many? Uh, you you spoke of the hair you brought in, but what other pieces outside? Like is it is it more direct or abstract? And I'm, it's I'm it's everything, more. right? And so I started doing the nest because I was thinking of nest as the places that these bodies and beings would live in. Um, When you have children, you put them in a nest and you pray that they're safe. Sometimes you kick them out, you know, because it's time for you to fly on your own. But the nest is always the safe place. I am so comfortable when all three of my children are home around the holidays. They are so grown. That, you know, Rumi says your children are of you, but they don't belong to you. So as soon as you have them, they belong to themselves. It's your job to keep them from, you know, dying within the first five years. You know, but then we get this magical age of 18 and then they're free. No, they're free when they're free. You know, if they can feed themselves, they can figure it out. Right. And they don't make the best decisions because the, you know, the third eye ain't developed just yet until they're 25. Um, They say the um, I forget what it's called. The pineal gland is not fully developed until they're 25 when they can make decisions that make sense. And Sometimes so 25 is, uh, I know, but you know what the ambitious. hell you, you know what the hell you doing at 25. So if you fuck up, you fuck up. It's on you. <laughs> we didn't gave you all kinds of tools to build a mansion. If you build a shack, your ass got to live in it. So let me get back to that. So I, you know, was thinking about like my great great grandmother. My grandmother used to tell us as young girls, when you comb your hair, you cannot throw it out. You have to burn it or flush it down the toilet, wrap it up, because if a bird gets it, only black women I know have said this, and maybe some southern white women. Um, If a bird gets your hair, they'll put it in a nest and you'll go crazy or you'll get headaches, right? So I started thinking of the hair as nest and what the Ode Ori, which is outer head in um, Yoruba speak, 
the ode ori and ile ori, which is your head, right? That's your first space, right? And so as a mother, like you lose your child, you lose your head. You just, I mean, that's just your head. Like Mm -hmm. you, in your mind, your children are supposed to go after you. That's just how your cycle in your head goes. So I thought about the nest. I also thought about the bird cages. And I made um, a lot of black bird cages with gold leaf. And I didn't want it to be like a gilded cage where you keep them in there and they're all rich and beautiful and they can't get out and they're safe. But in the show, all the cages are open. So the spirit and the body and the soul of that first home, which is your your womb, those babies are gone. Once they're gone, they're no longer yours. So you can't protect them. Mm-hmm. They're gone. So that's an abstract thought. The bird um, nest as a, um, you know, synthetic hair, that's also another thought and an abstract piece, if you would. They're pieces that you recognize, but that's what I used them for. And then I used pattern paper to make dresses. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking of patterns as the patterns of life, the cycle of life. No one wants to talk about death, but the cycle of life is when we're born, as soon as we're born, we're dying. Mm -hmm. As soon as we're born, we're dying, right? And so what's important within our lifetimes is what we do with the dash in between the time we start and the time we finish not it doesn't matter when your birth date is because you don't care and it doesn't matter what your death date is what's important is what you're doing in between and the hope is is that it doesn't get cut off short because somebody else felt that they were more important than you so I'm going to take your life Mm -hmm. and so I wanted to talk about patterns with using the patterns as making the dresses that are hanging the sticks in the show represent nature And I've dipped them in gold and gold leaf, which is real gold. Nature is very important in this story. We are all returning back to nature when we die. How we get there is how we get there. Whether we die naturally or someone takes our life, we're we're all going back wherever the spirit comes from, if you believe in that. So the sticks are in the show. Then there's tons of pictures of... um, Blackbirds with hashtags on them, and that is called murder or conspiracy because it could be a raven or a blackbird, but it's groupings of blackbirds. If it's two of them, that's attempted murder or an unkindness. Hmm. So I did draw a very large raven. Ravens are much bigger than crows. They all are very smart birds, and if you look in mythology, they're messenger birds of warning. Right. So I also have a bird cage that I drew. These are very large drawings. Then I have a morning dress where, again, where the womb is, there's an empty bird cage. Hmm. Um, There's also quite a few paintings of there's one painting of me called Why You Want to Fly Blackbird. And each of those paintings has a sewn blackbird on it. Hmm. I'm not blackbird, but um, a feather. And that's called um, molting. When birds lose a feather, it's molting. So um, I did a dress form where there are, she's carrying packs of feathers, and I was thinking of the Tarig and people who um, go through the desert and they carry packets on their hats and their jackets. Those packets are, um, they're like a sacred uh, holy papers from the Quran or whatever they believe in, and those holy papers give them blessings so they can make it from one place to the other. And those molting feathers on the side of that are the feathers from the fledglings that are no longer here. Wow. So it's abstract and heavy, wow. um, but if you don't, like, I feel like there's a lot of dead masters in the DIA, right? 
you don't get to ask them what their work is about. You have art historians, you have curators, you have people who've studied their work. Mm -hmm. But in this case, I'm here, right? And so if you want to know what the piece is about and you like it, you can say it's really beautiful, but what does it mean? These are my thoughts that I'm trying to communicate as I'm working, but not really slapping you in the face with this is what this means, this is what this means, you know, and being so obtuse with it. Like, I want you to to enjoy it. I want you to be seduced by its beauty. And then I want to hit you with how heavy it is. And I think women like Jessica, Stephanie Christian, Idea, you know, women who have these beautiful voices with their artistry, even Cecilia Sharp, right, mm-hmm. who have these beautiful voices with their artistry, They're such heavy thinkers, right? They're not just playing music or writing down poetry. They're giving you a piece of them and their passion, but it's also who they are. And some parts of it can be very heavy. It's not just, I can just sing do, re, mi, or either I can go roses are red, violets are blue. There is content to what they're saying. And I want to make sure that there is content to what I'm saying. I'm either asking a question, I'm telling a story, or I'm telling you that I empathize with these mothers because I too lost my black bird. You know what I'm saying? And I too am a black bird. Yeah. And so I want I wanted that to come through in that show. That's that's deep. And I'm gonna chop this up and put that in trailer form too. Um because that's what many art enthusiasts and people that look at art always want as far as i'm concerned just like a deeper interpretation yeah uh, even when we look at the documentaries on music sometimes it's like wow i didn't even know that right it was, it was in that in that form so as we talk about our art school i said like i'm gonna put a pin in that a little bit but okay. what was art school like and um art school is interesting i'll tell you i'm coming from an all-black neighborhood i went to cooley high school Graduated in uh, uh, the 80. Cooley That's Cardinals, right. Cooley another Cardinals, bird, right? I was supposed to be at uh, Redford, the Redford Huskies, but ah. my siblings messed that up real good for me because they was fighting everybody. And then when I got there, the first day I heard somebody go, "There go they sister right there." I was oh, like, "I'm ew. going home." <laughs> so I went home and begged my grandmother and my mom to switch me to uh, another high school because okay. my siblings messed that up. So. I just wanted to come in new. I didn't want to fight nobody. I just want to be quiet and go to mm-hmm. school. And so I got in, you know, they put me in the Cooley and uh, I was in a pre-college program and I wasn't able to take art, which was interesting. Wow. Um, so I had sewing for four years mm-hmm. and I could make the hell out of a suit. Um, so that was my, you know, my creativity. People will be DMing. Exactly. That's all right. I ain't going to do it. I ain't doing a job. Um, so I, uh, there was a college fair in the school during my junior year, and there was a College of Art, Kendall, who was there, and they came to recruit, and I ran home and told my grandmother and my mom. I was like, oh, my God, there's an art school. I didn't know there was a school for art. I could go to college for art. I'm so good at it. Let me go. And then we looked it up, and they didn't have housing, and they was like, no, nah, you can't. You See, you can't be going to Grand Rapids, and you ain't got nowhere to live, and you already got a baby, and you can't leave your baby here because this is not my responsibility. This is your baby. We're going to support you, but you're going to keep your baby with you, and you're going to be with your baby. So... I was like, okay, I ain't going to college then. So I ended up working for a graphic designer who worked for the state of Michigan, and he was really awesome. And um, I was just labeling videos that he would do. And um, 
he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I'm already an artist. And I was hustling. I was doing portraits. I was making clothes. I was doing nails and hair. Okay, that's called that's, the creative that's the hustle. Hard, yeah, that's their hard hustle. Listen, I had a car. I had a baby. I was making all people, kinds of money. I had my first apartment. I Plaza in Trapper's <laughs> Alley. Like, I'm going to paint a big I picture. I worked in Trapper's Alley. So check it. So I made <laughs> money picture. doing that, right? I wasn't down there, like, on the sidewalk like my bros are. I was doing them on my own. Um, and I was doing okay. I mean, I would do a portrait, mm-hmm. $50 a portrait. Mm-hmm. And I would use crayon, pencils, whatever. And um, then I would make clothes. I could make full suits. I could make swimming suits. I could make lingerie. I was doing everything. And so, and, this is, uh, and nails. Time, and nails. Like, what, what time is this? Because I'm guessing. This is in the 80s. Yeah, so I'm guessing you probably had a lot of people like, okay, I want that Prince look, that Madonna look, that right, whole Madonna right, feel. Right, right. And I think a lot no, of people No, you forget. know what it was? It was like... Um, shoulder pads suits it was like you know it wasn't a lot of lace and stuff like that it wasn't that it was like straight business clothes you know so i was making like really nice blouses and Mm. nice suits they were like three-piece suits pantsuits women were like really doing their thing power right right exactly it was like early whitney houston okay that kind of stuff and so and the women had like the salt and pepper hair you know Mm -hmm. it was like you know long on one side short on the other with stacked curls um big bamboo earrings so i was doing that i was making money and so when i got in his office he was like well what do you want to do i said well i'm already an artist and he said why don't you go down there and i said down where and i was like the only art school i know is too far and he told me about ccs and we were on the boulevard in woodward so we were less than what eight blocks from the school i didn't even know So he took me down, made an appointment. They rejected me real nicely. All I had was a sketchbook. I cussed him out on a payphone. I was like, you tell me I had to handle damn portfolio. Because I thought it was a case as opposed to my collection of pieces. Uh And neither did the admissions people. I had like three admissions people. They were all white. They were smoking, drunk. They told me, no, I couldn't get in. And and as you tell this story, um, another one of my favorite artists, uh, Jay Rainey. Yeah. She talks about her story. Yeah, Jay Rainey got rejected C- by yes. by um Althea about three times. And and CCS has a unique relationship with a lot of Detroit black artists because like a lot of things in Detroit, yeah. even Wayne State, sometimes it can be supportive of black art. But it also has a history of not necessarily. Well, Jay Rainey got art. in and then she took my class. I was teaching African-American art history. And right uh-huh. after she took my class, then I started working in admissions. Mm. And so, yeah, they told me no. And I, I walked myself around. I called the dude that dropped me off. I walked myself around the classes. All the doors were open. I went in and I looked at people's artwork. I said, can I see what you're doing? And they showed me and I was like, oh, hell yeah, I could do this. They just racist. So uh-huh. I just had a moment where I felt like they were like um, just being racist. Yeah, and yeah. so it was cool. Um, it worked out where I, um, I, I was able to kind of walk through. And then he took me to uh, community college. I got in. It was great. Um, and then I went back a year and a half later and got into CCS and I got a really great scholarship. It, it paid almost full completely along with my financial aid. So I didn't have to pay anything out of pocket. Um, and I asked for the same people and they didn't remember me from Joe Blue. But I had copied a lot of images off of albums and then pictures of my baby. And so I didn't know what a portfolio was in terms of a collection of your things. Mm. And so all I had was a sketchbook and some suits that I had made. And they mm. were like, nah, you ain't ready. OK, <laughs> so going there, mm-hmm. what was it like going there? 
Oh, it was beautiful. I was so hungry. I became the president of the black group. I became the the um, director of the gallery. I got into student government. I was so happy to be in college. That was an art and design college. I wanted to do everything. And I was hungry. Um, CCS was and still is a predominantly white institution. So a PWI. And I felt very comfortable. Like I, you know, I was super social and I, and I wanted to be better than I was the day before. I wasn't trying to compete with other people there, but I was like killing it. I was just like every day I was like, oh, listen, I'm supposed to be here. I'm amazing. I don't know what they was thinking a year and a half ago, but I'm about to just do it all. Okay. And so I think because I was so hungry and so happy to be in college, I took my children with me. I didn't care. They was in class. They was drawing with me. They were. Mm. I was nursing Mario there. So mm. Denise was five. Mario was just born. I started in 87. I was an, a non-traditional student. I couldn't hang out with the kids who had dorms. I did, but it was like, listen, I got to go home to my babies. Y'all go ahead and drink your beers and hang out. And um. I just didn't. I didn't want to get high. I didn't want to smoke. I didn't want to drink. I just wanted to do art, period. Wow. And I wanted to um, show my professors that I was a good student. So I had a mentor, Gilda Snowden, who was a mentor and a friend. Shout out to Gilda Snowden right? for being one of, I want to say one of the most phenomenal Detroiters uh, on a lot of levels. And if you bump into any artists, they will rain her praises but shout out to gilda snowden gilda listen she mentored me because it was a lot of stuff that was said and done and i would go in her office and i'd be crying i'd be crying like this white man she was like girl just do what you need i'm like and she'd be like listen get it together and i'd be like okay so dexter elmhurst had to be pushed back a lot of times but gilda was was really there for me you know and she explained you know, a lot of stuff that I just didn't understand. And I was like, and how is it that I'm older than some of these kids and they know this stuff and I don't, you know, and I felt like I was behind in a lot of ways. But um, there were people who kind of took um, took me under their wing and were very kind to me and, and helped me out. Bill Harris was one. He was my English instructor. Hmm. Um, he was teaching there at the time. And uh, Lester Johnson you know, was there. And so, you know, those were the only black artists I knew. And then I, I, I got to the point where I was like in an uh, advanced art history class, my fourth year. And I was like, why haven't we talked about black artists and where are they? You know, and going to an all black high school, an all black middle school, an all black elementary school. Being and born then, in 67. Right. And then you get to your college level and you're like, how come we not talking about black artists? And wait a minute, this is an advanced art history class and we talking about everybody else. So, of course, my dear white people <laughs> bucked up and I was like, I'm not coming back to class if this white man keep talking about white artists and most of them are male. So I got pissed off and Gilda was like, well, start collecting books on black artists and then start doing the research and put the books in the library yourself if you want it to be taught here. And that's what I did. And then I started, you know, a couple years after I left CCS, I actually offered the first African-American art history course at wow. CCS. So that, you know, Gilda was um, my mentor, my friend, and also my professor. Mm. You know, she, she really kind of gave me wings to be like, oh, you don't, you don't like what you see? Then change it. But you have to change it from your position. 
that's powerful. That's yeah. powerful. And, and Gilda also played a strong role in so many other artists. Like Jay Rainey loves Gilda as well. Well, Gilda was Jay Rainey. See, I mean, you know, she was also her mentor because Jay Rainey wanted to go off on a lot of people too. And I think she might I'm have. I'm sure she ain't no. You, ain't no want to. <laughs> you know, and I ain't was in no Gilda's office crying like, I'm just my babies and shit. These white and Gilda and Jay, Jay Rainey was like, probably I'm like, I'm killing everybody, everybody, all these motherfuckers dying. <laughs> <laughs> and, J- and Jay Rainey used to be in my class be like you want to fight me no I don't want to fight you let's go eat shit Hilarious. you know so we were like I could I see Jay Rainey Jay. doing that so yeah yeah and when she was in my class there was some times I'd be like listen get that paper written and I you know I gave students an option like mm-hmm. instead of writing a paper you get to go to a gallery I need you to interview some artists I want to see that you're activating yourself in these and I had all the black students in my class and maybe one white student it was amazing. I was like, and I advertised my class uh, by saying uh, Hakamano Brothers on the Wall. I used the Hilarious. Spike Lee, you know, and that's Hilarious. how I advertised my class, Hakamano Brothers on the Wall. And it was great, and everybody signed up for it. And we had, like, one white student, and then I was teaching at Oakland University with Richard Lewis at the same time. So we combined the students together, and when we covered the Harlem Renaissance period, we went to Harlem. Mm, wow we took the trip and so i was like you can come on the trip that was 90s harlem that was like real you see what i'm saying and and wajid was there his ass got an a in the class Uh (laughs) he would draw roaches on every side of his paper every all the time i'd be like why are you drawing roaches on that's how you thank you i appreciate these roaches i still got some of those um but yeah you know we i loved my class i loved my students um i loved teaching with richard lewis because i didn't have a master's degree and i had to co-teach it with somebody who Mm -hmm. did and so I just had all the research and the books and, the, you know, I had the curriculum outline. Yeah. And then um, Richard went on to Yale. I had to ask somebody else to teach with me. And it was Camille Brewer. And she thought I used her to teach the class. And I was wow. like, listen, she was like, I don't like teaching with you. And then I was like, listen, I'm cool with that. I will step way back as long as the class is offered. I'm cool. I can go over here and recruit. I'm really great doing this job. I don't have to teach here. I just want it offered. And so she ended up teaching the class for a while, and then she left, and then Gilda taught the class. And then um, I don't know who's – I don't even know if we still have it. But we are offering more diverse art history classes in terms of women, women of color, Asian, African-American. So they they do offer it now. And then those books that I used are in the library. Now, being a black artist – CCS can be competitive, black, but black, black. just being an artist in general, that's a very competitive curriculum and the competition As I know so many artists that are at a CCS or a Lawrence tech and the stressors. Well, you know, people with. assume that you go to an art school and it's easy and it's not because you have to come out, you have to be a thinker, right? You mm-hmm. have to come up with a question that you're asking and not just artists in terms of artistry, but there is also design. Yeah. So depending on what you're studying, um, you you do your thing, right? And so um, for me, uh, as a fine artist, it wasn't really about... Uh, competing, it was just making sure that it was making sense to me and that my voice was being heard in my head and that I had a challenge for myself and the shit looked good. But dealing with the critique, I oh, believe, the critique with was so hard. many of the artists 
because these are some of the greatest artists. It's like you're the best basketball player ever, and now you know you're you're somebody looks at you and like that's horrible. You can't even dribble straight. Right, right, like, right, what? right. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. But you got to take um, criticism with just a little bit of you know, you just like hair. Hair filters out stuff, right? You have to take criticism like that. You can use some of it, and others you just throw it away because you got to be able to handle it. And if you can't, you don't need to be in art school. Yeah, because I know. Because the world ain't going to treat you like yeah. the people you paying to give you a degree. You, you're, ultimately, you're paying them to tell you you suck so you can get better, right? <laughs> That's just like a coach. A coach is going to be on your ass, whether you're Clarissa Shields and you boxing. Like, get in there. Get in there. Get in there. Stick and move. Stick and move. Ali didn't start off the greatest boxer of all times Ali also had a coach right and so um I'm just thinking of Clarissa right now because she is like doing it right she's uh right now right now she's calling out Layla Ali and that's bothering me a little bit it's bothering me because you can't women's boxer ever yeah that would be me like trying to compete with Gilda like I would just throw Gilda under the bus because she ain't shit you, you know she's my she's my master right you can't throw Layla Ali under I the would, bus I you can't your ego need to sit down and shut up and let her be great where she is and don't be trying to call her out she she done as a, as so stop fan, it as a fight fan I still would watch that oh fight. my god I, would, I can't I would watch that fight I would not anyway so I you know you just got to get thick skin and as much as I've been through in my life, growing up the way I grew up, ain't shit nobody could say to me about my stuff that's going to hurt my feelings. Okay. Unless it's somebody that I really care about, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'd be like, yeah, all right. I done been rejected. I didn't get in here right. And now that I'm in here, cool. You don't like it? Cool. <laughs> I'm going back in the studio and I'm going to keep doing it because I done had people that I really love say some shit to me that really hurt. Mm-hmm. So ain't shit you can say to me about my work. So... Last couple questions, and I gotta ask this. Yes. As I see in Detroit is different, just connected to the unicorns. I forgot to ask you, could I cuss? I'm just cussing. Yeah, you can. can. Oh my God. Detroit is different. Somebody, Jessica, come get me. So connected to, (laughs) she'll be cussing more than you. Okay. But um, (laughs) connected to, uh, we are culture creators. It's a movement of young Detroit artistry happening right now. What's, right. What's it's so take? funny. It's what's so your funny. take on it? Uh, what, what do you feel? What's the energy when, when you see this or connect to it and you see this all coming together? I love it. That's why I do what I do. My, my job as, as one of the gatekeepers of CCS is to connect with them, to um, – love the energy that they bring to give them some of my energy, some of my knowledge. If they're asking for it, some people may not even feel that I'm relevant every now and then. Tylon will be like, I keep forgetting you not in my group, bro. I'm not in your group. Like I've been here since a while. Like you're my daughter's age, you and Sydney, you're my daughter's age. You Mario is hanging with y'all tough. Mario is 32. He's doing the the thing. I am not with y'all. I've been here. I think they're amazing, and I don't feel like I'm better than them. I feel like we're all together collectively, right? And I feel like there are levels of, you know, um, mastery that that they have accomplished, and um, they've gone out into the world and said, I'm from Detroit, and then they've come back, mm-hmm. and then they're held to a certain um, 
level of uh, mastery, right? And so I'm always here and I'm consistent. So I'm always creating. I don't ever want to compare myself to what they're doing. Um, and my son and Bomani is included in that. You know, um, somebody's got to keep the lights on as you keep going out and coming back. Yeah. And so I'm here and I am consistent and I'm going to keep going until I can't go anymore. And I love the young ones that come through that are in high school that are doing it or the young muralists like Backpack Durden or um, Ijania or um, um, God, there's so many uh, Nick, um, Brian Nixon or there's so many that are doing amazing work, you know, um, and then there's some really, really young ones that are coming out of the high schools that may not get into CCS or may not go to Wayne State and they're just zygist artists. Like they don't need an education to continue their artistry. And so I feel like we all co connect on the level of creativity, creative class of Detroit, and we don't need to um, be crabs in a barrel. Like there's enough room for all of us here. That's one thing Detroit has in its space, creative space. You know, we, we can go and talk to Dabbles, you know, who is definitely in his 70s. Or 60s. I don't know how old like I say, is. I, it's hard to judge the age of black person. Right? And Tyree Guyton and, you know, Carol Harris or, you know, um, you know, there's so many creative people here who have been, you know, Carol Mariso, um, Judy Bowman. Like, they're all Georgia doing Nandi. it, right? But I'm just saying, like, we don't have to be, like, fighting each other or competing competing i i would guess um we all have our own lane and i'm good in the lane that i'm in where i'm doing artivism like sydney james has got the mural thing on lockdown i can do murals i can do stupid big or stupid small i love it it's not the thing that defines me though i would rather have more gallery and museum shows where i'm talking about what i'm talking about um, I don't mind painting murals. I love it. Um, I'd like to use my work in films. Um, I'd like to create a film about a blackbird. And, okay. you know, so that's just another iteration of what I'm doing. Your creativity. Um, and so I think with the young artists who are here and the mid-career artists, I feel like I'm mid-career. Um I also feel like I'm still emerging, like there's still some newness in me and I still have the energy. There are some times where I just need to just sit it down and stay in the cave and not go to any openings and not be influenced by anything. I'm super social, too. And so um, there's some there's some really great things that are happening in Detroit. And I like it. I like the the community that we have here. All right, so here are your last, like the classic Detroit is different questions. Mm -hmm. As we wrap up, uh, if people want to get in contact with you, how how, do, how should they reach out to you? I'm on Instagram. I had to, to close it up and have people request me because my daughter had some cyber bullying mm. and the little girl reached out to me too. And I'm like, girl, do it, where your mama at? So mm. <laughs> I just had to close that down, but it's it's still up. So Instagram is Sabrina Nelson 67. If you want to just look at my work, you can use the hashtag Sabrina Nelson art. Okay. I am on um, Facebook as Sabrina Nelson and I'm on Twitter as Nelson Sabrina. Okay. And I'm on Snapchat. So I'm everywhere that kids are because I use those tools for recruiting in high okay. schools as well. 
Okay. Um, so they can reach me there. They can also find me on CCS's website, you know, if they want to ask questions about earning a degree in art and design. But just checking me out, that's where I'm at. I'm on the interwebs. Dancing on TikTok one day. It's like recruiting. <laughs> Right, I'm on my way to Miami to recruit right now and okay. West Palm Beach, so I leave Beach. tomorrow. Okay. Um classic questions. First one is always uh what was your very first car? Uh Oh, I had an Omni hatchback. When did you Woo-hoo! get it? 1984. Okay, and where was the first <laughs> place you drove when you got it? I don't know. Probably the Northland. Northland. That is a classic place to drive. Mm-hmm. Classic place to drive. And then Bella. And then Bella. Okay, so it's like I got my gear. Then With my I baby. Went to the rock. With my baby. With the little homie. Right. With the little homie. Yep. Ain't that something? How long did it last you? I had the car for about two years. Then I crashed it. Mm. Okay, good. You got out of that good. Yeah. Good you got out of that good. So. Next question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're the DJ at the Detroit Fireworks, Woodward and Jefferson. You get to play three songs. They just ended. What three songs you playing? It's going to be Fela Kuti. Uh, any of his music. Mm. God dang it, man. I'm the curator of sound. I love everything. Le Nubian. Okay. Bandy, bandy. Wave your body. That's Badu with, uh, what's her face? Um, somebody from Detroit. Aretha. What song? You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. Okay, deep. And if you could rename Woodward after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? Hmm. Woodward, one Detroiter. I can't think right now. Uh, Mother Waddles? There we go. An OG in it. Oh, well. wait a minute. Martha Jean the Queen. Come on now. Okay, okay. That uh, We've had one vote for Martha Jean the Queen waking people up with prayers and blessings. That's right. And smiles on their face. If you I know used to Martha listen Jean to Martha the Jean the Queen all the time. And then I ran into her and we was dressed alike. I was like, oh, my God, yes. And I know she probably gave you a big hug. Yes, she did. Ah, classic Detroit right there. Classic Detroit. Me even stretch beyond Detroit. We need to do a, a, a Detroit is different on Martha Jean the Queen. Yes, we do. So thank you so much. You will be coming back. I love this interview. Uh, we'll definitely be pushing people out to the exhibit. I look to be going there soon. Yes. I'm going to bring some of my homies out. Bring them all. We're going to do it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Kari.